Well, I'm not sure that, uh, that you need to hear from me. Because I think God has already spoken to our hearts, hasn't he? Through the prayers and through the worship. It's such a blessing to gather as God's people. He always has a blessing for us, doesn't he? Well, you do need to hear this because I think God has a word for each of us here. You know, you don't need to hear from me, but you do need to hear from God. We all need to hear from God. And um, the sermon this morning is titled, Our God, the God of Power. Our God, the God of Power. And if we were to consider that word power, how would you define that word power? Let me offer some suggestions to you. How about the authority or control of a sovereign state? that reigns over a group of people? Or how about the influence of a political figure or a boss or a parent? (laughs) How about a bulldozer that, that can affect change in topography by moving huge amounts of soil and rock? How about a space shuttle rocket engine able to lift off the ground massive weight by defying gravity and propelling it beyond the Earth's gravitational pull. That is power. Now, I submit to you that although these are all examples of power, that they pale in comparison to the power of God and to the ability that He has to affect change in our lives. I'd like to invite us all, if you have your Bibles, to please turn to our text, which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'd like to start reading in verse 22, and I'll move through verse 24. This is the Apostle Paul who's writing to the Christians who lived in Corinth. And so... He writes to them by saying, For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called. And so Paul is referring to those who have been called into that saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith. And so he says, but to those who are are the called, both Jews and Greeks, it doesn't matter what our ethnic background, God's salvation is offered to all. And so again he says, but to, to those who are called, the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ, the power of God. Just earlier in the, the letter, in verse 18, Paul kind of reiterates the same theme where he says, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. And when he says that word perishing, he's talking about, about those who are still in their sin. They have not received the cleansing, the justification, which is through faith in Christ. And so he says, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. They are without understanding. But to us who are being saved or who are saved, it is the power of God. The power of God. We're going to consider a particular aspect 
of the impact of the cross of Christ in our lives here today. And to help in this effort, I'd like to turn to a very familiar Old Testament passage. I want to go all the way back to the book of Exodus and revisit that powerful story, that event, or actually it's a, it's a powerful uh, um, recollection of a true event that, uh, that occurred in the life in the nation of Israel. It's when God delivered Israel from Egypt, from the bondage of slavery to the Egyptians. I'd like us all to turn to Exodus chapter 13, if you would, please. Now, we're going to read very carefully through this passage because I believe that the physical experiences of Israel can speak very important spiritual truths to our lives. And so as we go through this account, we're going to uh, kind of highlight a few of the, uh, the areas. To give you a background, the Jews up to this point had been in Egypt for about 430 years. And as the years progressed, they, it became increasingly more difficult for them. Pharaoh was intimidated by the, the, the nation of Israel because they were increasing in population. God blessed the womb. And he began to realize that these people are becoming so large and so strong that if one of our enemies comes and invades us, Israel might join with our enemy and overtake us. And so he pressed the Israelites into hard labor, bricks and mortar. He had them build the stored cities within Egypt. However, God raised up Moses, who along with Aaron went to Pharaoh to declare to Pharaoh the message, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go. God heard the cry of Israel as they were under the oppression of this nation of Egypt. Even in the same way that God hears our cry today. Let's start reading in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. And the Lord was going on before them. Let me give us a context here. Um, This picks up where Aaron and Moses, on so many occasions, as we know, went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, thus says the Lord. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, didn't he? Occasion after occasion after occasion. Sometimes it looked like he was kind of going to relinquish control and oppression of the Egyptians. And then he changed his mind and then there was another plague. And then God would instruct Aaron and Moses to go into Pharaoh again and say, let my people go. Again, Pharaoh would harden his heart. But then finally, as we know, and we just celebrated the Passover meal during Holy Week, there was one last plague that really got Pharaoh's attention. Where the firstborn male throughout the land of Egypt, except for the nation of Israel, was going to be killed. That included cattle and livestock, as well as human beings. The male firstborn was to be killed. And with this final plague, Pharaoh finally, reluctantly said, go. Go worship the Lord in the wilderness as you have suggested. 
And so the Israelites are just on their way leaving Israel. I'm sorry, Egypt. And we pick this up in verse 21. And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. God has a way of making himself known to us human beings. When God's presence is in our midst, we know it. Many times in our hearts. But there's other times in the scripture that are very tangible. There are physical representations that reveal God's presence. And as we go through the scripture, many times we see the word cloud or fire. And as we go through the scriptures, it's important for us to ask the question, is this indicating the presence of God? And in this particular case, the cloud was the cloud of God's glory. And the fire was the protecting presence of God's power. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pahiroth between Migdal and the sea, and you shall camp in front of Baal-Zephon opposite by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. Thus, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. While the Israelites realized they are in the process of being freed. And so they were going out quite confidently. Little did they know who was hot on their heels. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. The Israelites were looking at their circumstances, weren't they? They saw that the Red Sea was in front of them and there was no way to go, where to go. And the Egyptian army was in hot pursuit behind them. And they found themselves pinned between un- the two um, massive 
objects. But I want us to consider the word that God spoke to Moses in verse 2 of chapter 6 in Exodus. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And then dropping down to verse 6, God says to Moses, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the bondage of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. In verse 8, God continues, and he says, And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses had communicated the words of God to Israel. And yet, because of the circumstances, they thought, we are doomed. I think this is a spiritual truth that is applicable to our lives, that when we read the words and the promises of God, we many times can stand confidently upon them. And then when circumstances change and they seem overwhelming, fear results. Our faith is reduced. And anytime we lack faith, fear comes into our lives. Fear is the result of a lack of faith. And when the Israelites saw the Egyptians marching towards them, they became very frightened. They were looking to circumstances. But in verse 13, Moses says to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. I like that word forget forever. When God frees, it's forever. Praise the Lord. In verse 14, Moses says, The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Isn't that a picture of God's grace? Here in the Old Testament, there was great opposition to the Israelites. And God said, Or Moses said, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. I'm reminded of the scripture in the New Testament, the words of Jesus, which John records us in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8 tells us, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were in the bondage to sin, Christ died for us. When we were hopeless and helpless, Christ died for us and paid that penalty for us on the cross. Well, let's continue... uh, Reading in Exodus, in verse 15 of chapter 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. And as for you, lift up your staff and stretch it out 
stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. And as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen, the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud, that is the cloud of God's glory, moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus, the one did not come near the other all night. The camps were separated by this cloud of God's glory and the darkness, and neither the Egyptians nor the Israelis uh, met each other during that night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. And it came about at the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. And he caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The, water, the waters returned and covered the uh, chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. Let's review a bit of what we just read. In verse 8 of chapter 14, the Bible says, Then the Egyptians, I'm sorry, uh, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel. Pharaoh wasn't about to let the Israelites go. He wasn't about to let them experience the freedom that God had purposed to bring into the Israel's into the Israeli into the Israelites' lives, he wanted to maintain that control of bondage over them. In fact, he was so insistent that even after he had allowed them to leave, he said, "I got to go get them. There's no way I'm going to let them experience freedom." And I believe that. There's a similarity between the bondage that the Egyptians experienced in their lives from a physical standpoint 
and the bondage that exists in the lives of the human being, the bondage of sin. In the Scriptures, God has provided for us the power of Christ. And Christ, on that cross, provided everything that we needed regarding life and godliness. I'd like to read for you, you don't have to turn here, but in the book of uh, Ephesians, there's a passage that the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church in Ephesus, uh, states, In him, or in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him, or in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise. So Paul reminds them that you listen to the message of truth. So, God's message is declared to the world. But then Paul doesn't leave it there, but he says, having also believed, united what we, uniting what we hear with our ears by faith and appropriating by faith the promise of God of salvation in Christ, God seals us or places us in Christ. This same Spiritual truth is revealed for us also again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Remember where I was just sharing before about the grace of God. This too is part of God's grace. In verse 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, wisdom from God in righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is our righteousness. By God's doing at the moment of our salvation, having believed upon Christ, God places us in Christ. A powerful work that has nothing to do with my effort, but everything to do with God. Now we see that Pharaoh would not let the people experience the freedom from slavery. And so our old man, our carnal nature, which we inherited from Adam and Eve, does not yield its grip on us in and of its own will. I think each one of us here can testify of the carnal nature. That sinful man that we inherited from Adam and Eve that rises its head and demands that we yield to its oppression. The old man takes on many forms. Many forms of the deeds of the flesh. Sexual promiscuity, lying, cheating, bitterness, abuses of substances, broken marriages that are the result of pride. The deeds of the flesh are many. We all know them very well. God was determined to bring Israel into freedom and to deliver them from the bondage of sin. He had made that promise years and years ago to bring them into the promised land. And God was going to fulfill that promise. Even so, God is determined to bring us, His children, into freedom and to deliver us from the bondage to sin and from our old man. 
Pharaoh wasn't about to let the Israelites go. But God over and over again, through his instruments of Moses and Aaron, said, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And again, God would say through Aaron and Moses, let my people go. And again, Pharaoh would harden his heart. And again, God would send Moses and Aaron. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. In the same way, God is determined to bring us, dear friends, into freedom. It took a miracle of power to free the Israelites from the bondage to Pharaoh. In the same way, it takes a miracle and the power of God to free us from the old man and from bondage to sin. That is the power of the cross. I'd like us now to turn to Romans 6. If you have your Bibles, I'd like all of us to turn to this particular passage. Romans chapter 6. Now, I mentioned that in the Scriptures, uh, in that passage in Exodus, we were going to look very carefully. Um, And there's one phrase that I'm going to reiterate to us, and it's found in verse 28 of chapter 14, when it talks about that Pharaoh's entire army had been drowned in the sea. It says, not even one of them remained. See, Pharaoh's army represented bondage. It represented the grip that that nation would have to attempt to bring Israel back into bondage. But I believe that in God's word, he was very careful to let us know that not one of those soldiers of the Egyptian army remained. In the same way, I believe that in the scriptures, through Jesus Christ, there no longer remains bondage to sin in our lives as those who have trusted Christ as our Savior. Paul, in the book of Romans, declares for us in verse 6 of chapter 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Paul's making a statement and he's bringing to our intellect a spiritual truth that he wants us to be very well acquainted with. He says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Paul's referring to the carnal man, that sinful nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve. And he says that our old self was, past tense, crucified with Christ. When Christ was on the cross, we were on the cross. God was determined to deliver Israel from the bondage of the Egyptians. God is determined to deliver us from the bondage to sin and the old man. He did that through the power of the cross. 
knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. God spoke in his word in chapter 14 of Exodus regarding the army of the Egyptians. Not one of them remained. Does that sound familiar to this end of verse 6 where it says that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, sometimes it's kind of hard for us to understand how we can appropriate the spiritual truths that are ours as a result of being in Christ. But I'd like to share a little example here for us. And um, I'm going to use the Bible here and uh, an envelope, okay? Got an envelope right here, just a simple envelope. And if I take this Bible and I, I give it to, uh, to Russ over there, I'm going to go ahead and give this to you and give this envelope to uh, Sister Sharon. And so where's the Bible right now? It's with, it's with Russ. And where's the envelope? With Sharon. Are they in the same place? No. These are completely two independent events. However, if I take this envelope and I place it in the Bible and I give this over here to Brother Dewey, listen closely, where is the envelope? Where is the envelope? It's with Dewey. Because it's in the Bible. If I take this Bible with the envelope in it and I send it over to China, where is the envelope? In China because it's with the Bible. In the same way, when God places us in Christ, whatever happened to Christ happened to us. And that's why the Scripture can say in Romans 6.6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because at the moment of our salvation, we were placed in Christ. Having heard the message of God, the Gospel, having also believed, we were sealed in Him, sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, remember, but by His doing, the Scripture says, you are in Christ Jesus. Christ places us in Himself at the moment of our salvation. How do we appropriate this for our lives? We can intellectually understand these concepts many times. But how do we see the effectiveness of the power of the cross of Christ in our lives. Let me give another example of this. Say, for instance, we who are gathered here are a third grade classroom. Okay, we're all third graders. All right? And we have uh, a teacher who is over us. However, this teacher is an evil teacher. The teacher oppresses us with too much homework, too many tests, too many writing assignments, research papers. He doesn't let us go to the bathroom. He gives us a 13 and a half minute lunch break. 
And he makes us stay overtime. He is an abusive, evil teacher. I'm making light of this, but on a serious note, let's consider as third graders the oppression that you must be under. This teacher, being adult, and you being a subservient, are intimidated greatly by this man. Well, one day the principal comes in and says, and, and the, the teacher's no longer there. You know, there's, there's no teacher. The first thing in the morning, the principal comes in and says, Children, um, we at this elementary school really care for your welfare. And we understand that this teacher that has been over you has been oppressing you and he's been a mean teacher and you have not experienced a good education as a result of being over you. We are concerned for you as a school. And I want to tell you enthusiastically right now that that teacher has been fired. You are no longer under that teacher's authority. Yay! All right. Praise the Lord. Yeah. And I want you to know that we hired a brand new teacher. And you're going to like this teacher. You're going to really come to love this teacher. Well, he introduces the teacher to you. And after a couple of days, you know, we, this teacher kind of gives us extended uh, periods of recess. And he actually plays with us during recess. You know, he sits with us during our lunchtime and visits with us. You know, he helps, with our ho- helps us with our homework assignments. He doesn't demand, you know, that we do too many homework assignments. And so we really come to love this teacher. And, and the relationship is just, that exists is just really positive. Well, one day, the teacher excuses himself and says, you know, I have to go down to the office because I have to take care of some, of, uh, take care of some administrative business. And uh, children, you all have your assignments, and so I'd like you to work quietly at your own desks and behave yourself. And so he leaves the, the classroom, and uh, about two minutes later, who walks in the door? Who? The old teacher. Good morning, children. Nice to see you again. Boy, I tell you what, put your books away and your pencils I'm sorry, and pull your pencils out on a piece of paper. I've got 65 arithmetic questions for you to answer. And you've got three and a half minutes to do that. And after that, I've got two essays that I want you to write in. You've got 14 minutes to do that. All right, get to work, you know. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to do the assignment? You're going to rebel. Okay. <laughs> What has been told you by the principal? He is no longer your authority. You can respectfully say, I'm sorry, I no longer have to yield to you because a higher authority has told us that you are no longer our teacher. But he jumps up on the chair and says, but you have to. I insist. I am your teacher and you must yield to me. What would you do? No. We have a higher authority. Friends, in the same way, when God places us in Christ, our old man has been crucified. It doesn't mean that he's been eradicated. 
We can all attest to the fact that he raises his head, right? The old man, that sinful man, and wants to convince us that we have to yield to his temptation. How many here can identify with that? I think every single one of us. That's right. And many times we yield to the convincing argument in our mind. To the satisfaction that that sin is going to bring. Somebody says something that offends me and, boy, I just want to respond and give them a piece of my mind. And the Spirit says, don't go there. And at that moment, I am at a crossroads. And I can either blow by the caution of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and just give that person a piece of my mind and operate in the flesh, or I can by faith in a moment, cry out to God and say, Lord, my flesh wants to get angry. But I am no longer in bondage to the flesh. I yield to you, Jesus. It is a passive work that we do to overcome and to overcome the old man and to appropriate the power of the cross of Christ. So many times we have seen in our lives failure over and over and over again. I can attest to that. And it's not a matter of me trying harder. It's a matter of me yielding to the grace of God, to the power of God which He has provided through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, um, I'd like to read just a few more verses concerning the implications of the work of Christ in our own hearts and lives. In verse 11 of chapter 6, Paul continues and he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. See the contrast? The contrast between the bondage to sin and the life that we live before God. The contrast that we saw between the bondage that the Israelites experienced in Egypt and the freedom that God brought to them through his miraculous, mighty power at a time where they thought there was no hope. We're dead, Lord. We have no hope. We're going to perish here at the hands of the Egyptian army. We're doomed. But the power of God delivered them. And in the same way, praise God, he delivers us. Verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. 
You see, God wants us to bear fruit for him. And when we are hindered by the sin that besets us, we are handcuffed from experiencing the freedom that God wants us to walk in as his children to bear fruit for him. You've heard the statement, a trophy of God's grace. Do you think that nation of Israel was a trophy of God's grace? Do you think that the surrounding nations heard about how God had delivered this nation of Israel that were in bondage by parting the Red Sea? Who was glorified in this situation? Was it the Israelites or was it God? It was God. In the same way in our lives, when we recognize the wretchedness, the depravity, the helplessness, the hopelessness of our own sinful nature and find and seek our refuge in Christ himself and experience by faith the deliverance, the transformation in our lives, people notice. The world will not look at us. They're going to say, look at that evil, wretched man. Look at that, that sensuous person, that liar, that thief, that criminal, that murderer, that drug addict. What happened in their life? They've been utterly changed by the power of God. In that case, who gets the glory? Christ. And so as we walk with Christ by faith, appropriating, receiving the promises of God, we too will experience the transformation from bondage to life, from fruitlessness to fruitfulness. To God be the glory. There's a beautiful uh, song that uh, many of us know. It's uh, been around for a long time, and I'm going to invite Dewey to lead us in the song, Make Me a Blessing. I think it's found 452. Is that right? 